lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Loving and merciful and generous Father, I recognize that I have no power apart from you, none in myself. In fact, not only do I not have the power, but we don't have the power to to hear your word apart from you doing that work. On my very best days, Lord, my prayers and my words are empty and in need of your spirit to breathe life and power into them. And I ask now that you would do that, Father. Please help me, help us in our thoughts to stay in line with what you want us to think and what is truly important from your word. I don't want to point our attention this morning to anything but your son, your sinless son who died for sinners. Pointing us to anything lesser would not satisfy Most of us don't need more money this morning, Lord. We don't need more stuff. But we need a clearer view of you working in and working through our lack or our abundance, our poverty or our prosperity. May we stand approved at the end, knowing that you are going to do that work in us. I pray this, Lord, in the name of of the only one who is truly righteous, the one who we already prayed died for our sin, the one through whom we now have access to you to even ask these requests. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, for kind of an introduction into this topic of what I just read, the lowly brother and the rich, I thought I would start like this. We're going to divide everyone in the room into two sections. But you're going to pick what section you go into. I remember kind of this happening when I was back in junior church. Does anyone, does junior church ring a bell to anyone that, even that title? So when I went to church with my parents, they would have like a separate church for the kids, like in another part of the building. And I don't remember what age group it was. I think it was maybe upper elementary or something like that, we would go into this other room and there'd be actually very similar today, but without the VIP seating over there. There were just two sections with the center aisle and it would kind of self-divide. Like naturally you'd have the boys on one side and the girls on the other. So I don't remember the ages, but it was obviously we were under 13 or there probably would have been some mixing. But So there were guys on one side and the, the girls on the other side. And I don't remember anyone telling us to do that. We kind of just self-selected, self-divided. And I thought about a little bit about what it would 
be, what it would look like, what it would feel like to have us do that this morning um, as we start this message. Now, I'm not going to really ask anyone to move, but if I ask people who consider themselves poor, if you consider yourself poor, would you come and sit over here in the left section? And if you think you're rich, would you come and sit over here in the right section? Where would you go? And again, I don't want anyone to move, but where would you go? What does it mean to be poor or to be rich? Does anyone really like to be considered rich? I mean, would you feel a little pretentious if you, you know, went and sat on the rich side? How about poor? Would that be overly humbling for you to say, yeah, I'm poor, I'm, I'm going to sit on that side? I think mostly people probably consider themselves somewhere in the middle, not really poor, not really rich. So we're going to have a whole bunch of people kind of sitting in the center aisle or standing in the back, not not really willing to go to one of those two arbitrary extremes. And then there's fire codes and we'd have to work out. So let's not move. Let's stay where we are. But kind of thinking through that, am I poor? Am I rich? What, What does that even mean? I think that hopefully starts to get us into the thrust of this passage this morning. Being classified according to our financial status, our standing, our bank account, our maybe social groups that we we run with. I think it's awkward, and that's even speaking highly. It's awkward at best. It's divisive at worst. So even in the Christian community, to divide by social or economic class isn't really right because James is actually bringing up in the next chapter we're going to see if you treat people differently based on their economic standing, that's wrong. That's, That's being a respecter of persons. But James here, in verses 9 and 10, has some instructions, and he directs them to these two classes of people. He gives an instruction that he directs toward the lowly brother, and then he gives another instruction that he directs toward the rich. And history really indicates that in the day and in the people groups to which he was writing, there probably wasn't much of a what we would consider a middle class. What there was was there was a lot of economic disparity between two extremes. There were the people that were poor. They were the dispersed Christians. They probably, because of their faith, would have struggled to find work, would have perhaps been oppressed by their their employers and had wages withheld and other things like that. So these were the people that were struggling to make ends meet. And then there were also maybe a handful of people in these churches that would have been wealthy. They would have had abundance, but God brought them to himself and saved them through the blood of his son. So you have this kind of wide gulf fixed between two very different economic groups, and they come together and they worship in the same church. And James here is giving them specific instructions to each group. This morning I have three simple points that I believe the text outlines for us quite naturally. We're going to go through those points. I think we're going to even have them up on the screen as I go through them. And we're going to start by looking at trials. Then we're going to talk about instructions for how we're to respond to trials. And finally, we'll see God's perspective on these financial trials. So we're already in the middle of a section on trials. Um, Chad, an introduction to the series, and then Stephen, the last two weeks, I think has prepared us very well to understand what James is talking about when he says trials. Because James is going to give us some really vivid examples now. He was speaking more or less in generalities before, 
Now he's going very directly to trials that are universal. Everyone, unless you live in a society that doesn't use money, you probably know something about the trial created by finances. For some of us in this room, they're probably all too familiar, this this idea of financial trial. And maybe hearing about money today, I I don't know, but maybe hearing about money is going to touch you in a very raw and painful way. No one probably needs to be reminded about the global recession that we're in and just how bad it is. And even recently, we've had a few messages in recent months on relation to finances, in relation to finances. And I think God is still doing a work on all of us in this area. I think it's something that maybe I wouldn't have chosen because of those other messages, but as you're working through a book, we come on this section, it's on finances, and that's, that's I believe, what God wants us to hear this morning. So as we look at trials, what, what do we even, what do we think of when we hear that word trials? Do you think you have trials? Do you see others in trials? Do we only think of trials as the big things, the significant, the life-changing traumas that we may go through? To be laid off from work, to experience some kind of a major loss, these certainly try us. But I'd like it if we could broaden our definition of trial a little bit this morning so we don't let the word just become a cliché. I don't want us to just think trials, tough times, and it's just kind of a cliche for us. Because I think it's appropriate to consider a trial anytime our expectation doesn't match up with our reality. Let me repeat that. Anytime our expectation doesn't match up with our reality. When we dream or hope or plan for one thing, and then something else takes its place. And where does this contrast, this stark contrast between what we expect and what we get, where does this happen more frequently than in our financial lives? Let's define the trials in the text. It's already up on the screen, and it's the first blank if you're writing in the outline of the bulletin. Poverty. Let the lowly brother boast. James makes it clear here that he's referring to a poor, a lowly Christian. Why do I say Christian? Well, he uses the word brother. And brother, um, in the epistles, in he's not talking about an actual blood family member, but he's talking about a fellow blood-bought follower of Christ. And because of God's work and bringing them together into a spiritual family, he's using the term brother. So brother means he's speaking to both men and to women who are among the redeemed. Now, when he uses that term lowly, so it's a lowly brother, he's covering more than just someone who has a few cents in their bank account. He's covering a broader range of meaning, a whole range of circumstances that people are probably familiar with. Because it covers those who just don't have their needs met because of economic problems, but also those who are looked down on. And those often are the same people. Someone who doesn't have much, often is disregarded by society. They're often discounted in society, dismissed. That's the lowly brother, the one who, because of his economic situation, is really thought little of. He's of little value. He has nothing to offer. 
And so this is the trial of poverty. Or I submit that this is the trial of poverty. Which leads us to the perhaps obvious, perhaps non-obvious question. Do we believe that poverty is a trial? Is being poor a trial? I'm pretty sure it is. I I, I don't think I'm going to get much arguments on that point. Even though I know that I personally haven't fully grasped that trial, I haven't fully experienced the pain of being poor, like some have, maybe even here. The trial of poverty may be not having and wanting things that others have. So it may lead to things like um, envy. It may be a trial because you doubt God's goodness when you see what others have and you don't. And just as we talk about the fact that poverty is a trial, if this is your trial now, I pray that God would use these words from James to just speak grace and encouragement and hope into your life and into your difficulties. Maybe you're right now feeling looked down on and dismissed and worthless because you don't have much. Maybe you've been overlooked or disenfranchised because of that. Let me first say that you are in good company with believers throughout the ages. And know that while these verses don't promise you that you're going to become wealthy someday, these verses don't promise some kind of magical redistribution of wealth your direction, necessarily. They do give hope, though, for something far better. And we're going to get to that in just a little bit. So the second trial I think James is covering here is the trial of wealth. So point B under that is wealth. Whoa, you're saying, hold on a second. How can wealth be a trial? I mean, if we just had a little bit more, wouldn't our trials go away? Maybe that's your thought. You ask, are you really going to stand there, Josh, and straight-faced tell me that having money is a trial? I do think that's what James is saying here. So let's, let's work to understand that together. Let's work to understand how can wealth be a trial. But first of all, let's look at the text. So the lowly brother... In verse 10, it starts with, and the rich. And we're just trying to help identify who these two characters are. We have the lowly brother and we have the rich. He's referred to here in kind of a parallel form against the lowly that we saw in verse 9. And he really gets just that one word to describe who he is. He's rich. This is the haves in contrast to the have-nots that we just talked about. Perhaps more fitting, it's the esteemed, the respected, the looked up to in contrast to the despised and the looked down upon. And again, I really think that more than a number in a bank account is what's being referred to here. I think it's more than just how many houses the guy has. But it's the respect, the influence, the the way that people look at this person, the way that wealth tends to create this influence that's in view. And the natural tendency to treat the rich differently than the poor. That is a natural tendency. James is going to address that in chapter 2. It's a sinful tendency and it's going to be confronted very strongly. But it shows just that the rich do tend to get more respect. The wealthy do tend to get a little bit more um, 
time given to them or, or credibility or influence. So James here is speaking directly to the rich. The rich are supposed to do something. Now we come on kind of the, the big question. And I, I'm going to try not to spend very much time this morning on this, but I think it's a valid question we need to address from the text. Is the rich man in this passage a Christian? Is he a believer, a follower of Christ like the poor was? Because all we have there is, and the rich in his humiliation. Well, I'm not the first to have studied this passage, but the question has stumped many before me. So I want to be cautious and um, not jump to a conclusion in my answer. But I do have a direction I think the text takes us directly to. So let's briefly consider the evidence, since it will influence some of our applications later on. And here are the reasons that some believe the rich is not a believer. First of all, James, in the rest of his book, always speaks, let's just say negatively, of the rich. He never has really nice things to say about rich people. In fact, his other references to the rich are he calls them oppressors of the poor and blasphemers. That's in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? He talks of their final judgment later in chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So James isn't really, it appears, isn't really a big fan of those who are rich. So some people take that as a maybe a support for believing the rich is not a believer here. Verses 10 and 11 also, some believe those are referring to a final judgment an eternal judgment of the rich. But then there's other references. I mean, you turn to other places in Scripture. What did Christ say? In Matthew 19, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So it's clear that there are challenges to the rich believer, and Christ even spoke of that. But don't, don't forget his response, because the disciples were very surprised at that, if you remember. And Christ said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So you add these together, perhaps, and some would say that's support enough for this man to not be a believer. But I think it's at least a very appropriate warning. And let me speak that warning this morning for those who may have financial prosperity. It's a warning to continue to follow and love Christ more than your stuff, more than your riches. But I'm not convinced in my heart to teach that this man is the unbelieving rich. Here's why. These are the compelling reasons for me to say it appears that James is speaking to both poor believers and to rich believers. First of all, the parallel nature of these verses I read them earlier, but let me read them again. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Now, when we read that, we're kind of used to reading the English language, most of us. We automatically are going to fill in certain words in this sort of parallel statement. Let the lowly brother boast and let the, we kind of put that in naturally, let the rich 
And the rich is supposed to do something about his humiliation, so he's supposed to boast also. There's kind of this parallel structure, and we fill in words that are missing in one part of the parallel nature. And I believe it would be maybe logical, as one of the supports, to say this is true about his reference as a brother. Let the um, lowly brother and let the rich brother boast. Okay, so that's, that's just one thing, though. I don't think that's necessarily the strongest. Secondly, I think it would take harsh sarcasm for James to be saying the rich man should boast in his final judgment. So he's saying, and let the rich boast, let him glory, let him um, exalt himself in his horrific judgment that he will face at the end day. While James does use irony at times, like, like most authors in Scripture, like most authors anywhere, this would be very harsh sarcasm to say, let him glory in his humiliation. In the context, we're reading about believers. We're reading about how a believer is to persevere under trials. And finally, I believe the verses 10 and 11 can equally and perhaps even um, can greater indicate just the passing nature of earthly things. This grass is going to grow up. The sun's going to come out. It's going to wither. It's going to pass away. It had some beauty for a while. That beauty is going to perish. So the passing nature of earthly things could be those verses um, even better, perhaps, than referring to judgment. In fact, those words really are only used in the nature of transitory or passing away of things in the New Testament. So I take these together. I take these. I, I look at them. I pray about it. And it. In my heart, it indicates the instruction here is to wealthy Christians. So is it possible to be a Christian and to have financial prosperity? I believe it is, although with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God is the one that saves. God is the one that changes the heart. But we come back to our question. Is wealth really a trial? Is wealth really a trial? Because probably everyone agreed that poverty is a trial. Poverty is something where our, our hopes didn't match our, um, our final result. But wealth? Maybe you would say with Tevye, a fiddler on the roof. Any, anybody ever watch Fiddler on the Roof? It's a musical. Maybe musicals aren't that cool. So Tevye is the Jewish, the Orthodox Jewish father he lives in a very poor community, and he dreams of riches. The song, If I Were a Rich Man, is sung by Tevya, this, this Orthodox Jewish father. But at one point in this, in this musical, it's in a film, he says something along the lines of, if riches are a trial, then bring them. Or if riches are um, adversity, bring them. And maybe you feel a little bit like that, like, if it's really a trial, I'll, I'll take it. That It's not a problem. And sure, the life of the rich may be trouble, trouble-free, may have fewer troubles in some ways, but with more possessions are going to come greater cares, are going to come greater responsibilities, and I believe greater temptations come with economic prosperity. Now, let's think about what some of those dangers of material prosperity might be. Money can be a strong temptation toward greed, toward desire. Just because you have doesn't mean that you're all of a sudden going to be happy. In fact, having things will often lead to seeing 
something nicer that someone else has. And you want more. And then that's not enough, and you want more. So there is this strong temptation, I believe, that comes with wealth toward greed and toward desire. I believe also that the rich are prone to pride, to self-sufficiency, believing that because they have have gotten their act together and have made this wealth for themselves, they can make it on their own. That is something that every person of wealth needs to be very careful about. Part of the trial of wealth, I think, too, is simply thinking that you're more important than others, thinking that you're more valuable, you're more needed than someone else who may not have what you have, or even be tempted to think that you don't need God, and that should scare all of us. Proverbs chapter 30, I believe, supports the the idea that wealth is a trial. In verses 7 through 9, let me read this. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. This is what the the author of the Proverbs says. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Then he says, why? Feed me with food that's needful for me, lest I be full This is the one who would have riches, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or, this is the um, trial of poverty, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So according to even this Old Testament proverb, the rich are prone to trust their wealth and forget God. Now God isn't singling out either the rich or the poor here for some special testing, for some special trial. But both do have their own unique trials. And we shouldn't think we're going to have fewer trials if we can only improve our standard of living. If I only get this next raise, then my life is going to be easier. Don't think that. Because that next raise is probably just going to get you wanting to raise after that. So you can upgrade your car, you can upgrade your lifestyle. So I believe wealth and poverty are both trials being spoken of in this passage. Maybe you're still not sure now. We've talked a little bit about the trials. Maybe you're still not sure where you fit. Maybe you're still sitting somewhere here in the center aisle and saying, nah, those really don't apply to me. I'm you know, not rich. I'm not poor. Can I go home now? Well, really don't think you have to be considered wealthy. But you're not poor by society's standards. You know, you have perhaps a job that pays okay. You have your basic needs met on a regular basis. Well, I think this is a really good day for you. This, this, James is referring to you twice then. You get to listen to both the admonition to the poor and also the admonition to the rich. Since, since you don't fit into either of them, when things are tight for you financially, you can look to his exhortation to the poor. But when things are going well, maybe you get a raise. Maybe you you have a new job opportunity. Then listen to what he says to the rich. Because this is really probably where most of us fit. I think very few of us are going to fit totally into one extreme or the other. But we all need to hear both applications and then apply as the Spirit shows our need. We finished the first point. We've talked about the trials, what, what the trial of poverty looks like, what the trial of wealth looks like. But I think we should now look at how James is instructing us to respond. What are these instructions he's giving? What are the commands? How are we to respond to these trials? Well, first of all, the poor should boast. The poor should boast. Let the lowly brother boast 
in his exaltation. And I put it this way. If you're taking notes, maybe jot this sentence down. The Christian who is poor should boast in his rich relationship with Jesus. The Christian who is poor should boast in his rich relationship with Jesus. It's probably good to clarify what we mean by the word boast. Words like this are very colored by our culture, colored by our society, maybe colored by playing pickup basketball and You don't like the guy who's always boasting. He's trash-talking. He's saying how good he is. And maybe in your mind you hear the word boast and you're like, eh, not so sure I want to do that. The Bible tells me to do it, but, you know, I've seen it done badly before, so maybe you just don't listen to those verses. Well, even though most of us probably have something or someone come to mind when we think of the word boast, and it may not be positive, it did have a meaning in the ancient sense and probably didn't have all of the negative connotation that we have today in our, our, our society of, of independence and of self-promotion. You could really even substitute a word like glory in there. Although glory is another word maybe in our, in our modern day we don't think of, but you could rephrase that, let the lowly brother glory, let him rejoice, let him boast in his exaltation. And outside of James... If you read much of Paul's letters in the New Testament, Paul loved to use the word boast. He actually used the underlying Greek word over 30 times in his writings. So you're reading through the New Testament epistles and you probably see words like boast or rejoice or glory. Here's just a few of them, a few, a few nuggets from Paul's writings. He said in Romans 5, Through him, Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice or we boast in hope of the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul writes, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In Galatians 6, Far be it from me to boast, except. He says, I'm going to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So boasting in ourselves is sinful and sourced in pride, but boasting in Christ is needful. While the poor Christian might feel belittled by the world, we already talked about how they may feel insignificant because of their social and economic standing. Be assured, you, poor Christian, have a special place in God's kingdom. In fact, in the very next chapter, in chapter 2, James is going to tell us how God often chooses the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. This might remind you of places in Christ's ministry where he said things like, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. God chooses what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Jesus' first beatitude in his mountaintop sermon was about the poor in spirit. There is a special place of the needy and of the despised of society in God's kingdom. So rather than feeling worthless, rather than feeling insignificant, maybe people treat you like you are the scum of the earth. But rather than letting that shape your identity, these poor Christians, you 
lowly brother are to boast in the fact that you are being lifted up with Christ, that you are being exalted, elevated, lifted up. Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places. Speaking of the exaltation, of the being lifted up. Ephesians 2 is another place. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up, exalted us with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have an exalted position that is totally independent of our social or our financial status. We have a position, an identification that's rooted in something totally outside of ourselves. It doesn't matter what kind of a job we have or if we even have a job because our identification is in the finished work of Christ. Again, the Christian who is poor should boast in his rich relationship with Jesus. He has an inheritance that is not going to fade away. Now, you may have a concern having heard that. You may be a little bit on the skeptical side, and at this point, you may be getting frustrated with me. So let me, let me stop, let me address a concern that may be coming into your mind at this point. And if it isn't, I'm going to put it there now. What good is it to tell this poor guy to glory in his spiritual riches in Christ? I mean, he's still poor, right? He still wears ragged and dirty clothes. He still eats, you know, rather meager meals. Maybe he can't put shoes on his kids or pay for medical care for his family. Really, Josh, what good are spiritual riches to this guy? He, he, needs, he needs physical riches, doesn't he? And I don't, I don't fault this perspective. In fact, James is going gonna, is gonna to talk about that. He's going to talk about the, the be warmed and filled person. So the, the church that pats someone on the back and says, you know, I, I see you're really struggling, but sorry, just hope, hope things get better for you. Hope, hope things are looking up. We, we can't do that, but at the same point, if we don't recognize the riches that are spiritual, we miss the greater point that our greatest need, the greatest need of the human heart, is spiritual. It's not financial. The greatest need in each of us is spiritual. And it's rooted in how are we related to God. It's not based on what we can purchase, what we have. So spiritual riches in Christ are the reality. The things we can't see are the reality. Material riches are only an illusion. They're they're like a a vapor that's just going to pass away. And this totally flips on its head the cultural notion of reality. Because we often think reality is what we can see and touch and everything else is just kind of make-believe. It's like a fairy tale. But no, Our riches, our spiritual riches in Christ are the reality. They are the only true thing. So how often do we let our lowly status? And I want to include all of us in this. How often do we let our lowly status, the feelings we may have of insignificance, 
How often does that create anxiety in us or maybe discouragement? You may think, society doesn't care about me. I'm not very popular. My bank account balance is never going to put me in the Forbes top 100 list. Well, maybe you probably aren't thinking that high, but, you know, something along those lines. I'm really not that important. I'm not that valuable. When things are going bad, when you're being persecuted or even just feeling persecuted like that, rejoice. Rejoice that God will lift you up. Boast in the fact that he already has lifted you up. Because even if your earthly poverty is never resolved, even if you never get, you know, a 401k plan, even if you never have anything of much um, earthly value, your spiritual inheritance right now, believe right now at this moment, has more value than anything you could ever attain here on earth. Your spiritual value, Christian, right now at this moment, your spiritual inheritance has more value than anything on earth. So rest and boast in that. So we've talked about how the poor should boast. But we also have a message in verse 10, and the rich should boast in something. The Christian who is rich should boast in his absolute dependence on Jesus. The Christian who is rich should boast in his absolute dependence on Jesus. Now the command to boast, again I mentioned the parallel kind of um, wording there, it's kind of implied in the nature of the language. The rich, though, are supposed to boast in something completely opposite what the poor were told to boast in. The boasting of the rich is grounded in their humiliation. So we've got this, the poor people, the people down here, they're supposed to boast in their exaltation. The rich people, the people that think they're all that, are supposed to boast in their humiliation. So it seems like a, a paradox of sorts. It seems like it's all backwards. It's all flipped over on its head. He's supposed to boast in being made low. The, the root word here for humiliation is actually the same root word as lowly in the lowly brother. So he's supposed to boast that he's being made low, that he's being brought down, that he's being made insignificant. It may be this humiliation is referring to the identification with Christ, that in being identified with Christ, in claiming the name of Christ, the rich are now less popular in the eyes of the watching world. Thus, it could be a literal being brought low. I claim the name of Christ. I was up here before. Everyone was looking at me, thinking I was great. I said I was a Christian. Boop, down here. No one, no one really cares about me anymore. It was a social hit, perhaps, for that unpopular stand for Christ. Perhaps. But I don't think that really is true for us in America. I don't think when you say that you're a Christian, you really get like, knock down a few levels. Maybe, maybe it's true in your line of work, but it seems like a lot of people with money you know, claim the name of Christ. They you know, say, I'm a, I'm a good Christian person. So I don't think that's necessarily the humiliation. I think it does include, though, a recognition. He's used to being top dog, the rich. He's used to having people look up to us, depend on him, And now the rich is saying, I'm going to put myself down. I'm going to be thought of as low. I'm going to 
consider myself, like James said, a slave, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I'm the person that's supposed to have servants. I have the money. I can, you know, in that day, I can hire servants to do pretty much everything I need done. But I'm going to call myself a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, this is a low position of the rich. He's saying my dependence is on Christ. I can't, I can't buy things. I can't buy my relationship with Christ. I need to put myself down and understand that the sinless son of God, this one that was also an outcast of society, he's my savior. He's my king. And I'm going to put myself below the position that my riches would have afforded me. The low position of the rich believer is the same low position every Christian shares as we bow to request mercy and forgiveness of sins. You you may have heard the statement before, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You, you You don't have greater prestige, greater authority at the foot of the cross because of your wealth, because of what you have, because of your prestige, your portfolio, your houses, your money. You're rejoicing in the fact that you have been brought low by the blood of Christ. And you go through that same narrow gate as every other Christian. You you don't get some VIP seating. You don't get to be let in through the back door because because of your status. No, all who come to Christ must come low, must come as repentant, humble sinners before a holy and righteous God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. So we've seen how the Christian who is rich should boast in his absolute dependence on Jesus. He is no longer kind of a law unto himself. He is fully dependent on Jesus and on Christ's finished work. One preacher shared these thoughts on the verses we're looking at today. He said, Jesus Christ is the great equalizer. That was actually my backup title for the message this morning, the great equalizer. Jesus Christ is the great equalizer. He takes the poor and lifts them up. He takes the rich and he pulls them down. Jesus said to the poor blind beggar, arise. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, this rich tax collector, you come down. You're probably thinking, for I'm going to your house today. That was a kid's song. He said to the poor blind beggar, Arise, and to Zacchaeus, the rich tax collector, you come down. Still quoting this preacher, We are all sinners in need of redemption. And we all become equal in God's family. We're all on the same level. So how do I apply this? How do we apply this? Perhaps God has given to you prosperity or recognition in some aspect of your life. Maybe it's financial, maybe it's social. Boasting in your humiliation means that you still love the Lord more than your goods or your reputation. Whether those things multiply, whether you accumulate and God blesses you with more wealth to be a steward of, or whether your things, your reputation just go away completely. Boasting in your humiliation says, I'm going to love Christ more than those things. Instead of depending on my wealth, depending on my social status, my dependence is going to be clearly and consistently on Jesus. 
So we've talked about the trials. We've talked about the response. Let's go now to our third point and look at the perspective. So what encourages or motivates or enables us to live with this countercultural boasting in our trials? There's some very key truths about reality that James is going to talk about. All right? I, we need to ground ourselves in these over the course of our lives and our development of faith. There are two parts of this eternal perspective that we're to have in financial trials. And the first is recognizing that financial trials have a temporary status. A temporary status. The end of verse 10, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. How many of you have a lawn, grass, grassy area? It may be postage stamp size. A, a lawn that you are responsible in some way for maintaining. A lawn. Okay. The rest of you are lucky. <laughs> okay, I have a lawn too that I am responsible for maintaining. Now, some of you might put time and energy and resources and and sweat and blood into keeping, well, probably not too much blood, into keeping your grass green through the dry Oregon summer. I'm not going to judge you for that. But I tend to fall on the other side. So I'm thinking when I'm reading this verse, the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. I'm thinking of my lawn because it is brown right now. And I think this is going to be my motto verse for my lawn. In fact, next letter the Homeowners Association sends to me saying my grass is too brown and I need to water, I think this is going to be in there somewhere. The sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass. That's me. So, so this, this makes sense to me. The, the idea of the sun heating, heating up the, the earth, there's probably even in this context something, an idea of these east winds that would come through in Palestine, Sirocco winds or something like that. And they're very familiar to the audience that would have been reading, reading this text or hearing this text. It's similar to what we read in Isaiah 40, um, where the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. That, that concept of the temporary nature of, of plants, of things that grow out of the ground. In fact, in Palestine, they have flowers. I've, I've heard and read that they have flowers that cover their countryside, even in this very dry region of the country. So mid-February, you look out and you see just this lush floral landscape across the countryside. And a couple months later, by like May, it's completely gone. They've just withered up. So this idea of things being transitory was very familiar to the audience. This beauty that they have is gone in a very short time. And the tense of this metaphor, so he's using this kind of word picture to talk about what the fading away of riches are like. The tense is kind of proverbial. It's almost as if he's saying, this is what always happens. The flowers grow, the flowers die. This is a widely accepted truth. What was once beautiful, what was once fertile, is going to disappear into barrenness. It's really the way God created the world to work. Things grow, things die. Stuff doesn't last. Therefore, shouldn't be clung to for lasting value. And I believe he addresses this, this particular statement in context of the rich man. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits or in the midst of his business. 
while he's going about his, his, his normal business, he is going to fade away. His riches are going to pass. Because the rich in particular, I don't want to exclude anyone else, but the rich in particular are especially tempted to hold tightly to what they've earned, what they've acquired, what they have, what they've bought or built, the status. And God wants them to know, God wants you to know, those things are going to pass away. And even if, even if they don't pass away, even if the stuff you bought last year is still working, last decade's iPod or last generation's video game system just isn't cool anymore. I mean, we all know that feeling, I think, that what you bought, you know, three years ago, your iPhone 3G isn't cool anymore because iPhone 4 is out. So you want the new thing. And that's, that's really part of our, sorry, so if you have an iPhone, you love it, but iPhone 4, you know, Except for don't hold it in the one spot it hangs right now. Things are not going to hold your attention. They have no lasting beauty. The beauty is there for a while and then the beauty perishes. Something else is going to come out that's newer and shinier and faster and with more bells and whistles and you're going to want that. Seek lasting beauty. Seek lasting value and worth instead. Even if it means being brought low in this life. Even if it means... People don't think that highly of you because you don't have the latest and greatest things. Those things only have a temporary status. But not everything is temporary. Not everything is temporary. We aren't nihilists. A nihilist would say that when we die, our existence stops and, you know, I don't know what they say happens after that, but there's just like a great nothingness. We aren't nihilists. We believe in the doctrine of the eternal soul that God has placed in every human being. There are things that truly last. And that brings us to our last point. There is a permanent status. We need to keep what is permanent in mind through our financial trials. Verse 12 fits as a hinge between this and our next section. Blessed is the man, happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, this is a, a foregone conclusion. This man is going to stand the test. He is going to make it through the fire of testing. He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I think he's echoing and also amplifying what James has already said in this chapter, how a Christian is supposed to endure through trials rather than be taken out from under the trial. The trial itself has a purpose of purifying us, and we're going to come out of it with greater character that we couldn't have received any other way. But James is telling us here about something new, something he hasn't mentioned before. He's telling us about an eternal reward that is waiting for those who persevere to the end. The crown of life. The crown of life. This isn't the jewel-covered ruler's crown that we're supposed to think of. But this is what athletic victors in that day would receive. So you win your running race, and you win enough running races, and you get the laurel wreath. It's um, kind of some vines that they would wind together and make a crown. You put it on your head, it lasts for a few days, and then it withers up. It has really in itself no lasting value. And so he's talking about this crown of life, but the prize isn't the crown. 
but the life itself. In fact, this could even be read, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown that is life. The crown that is life. Eternal life with Christ is the great reward. That's what can be fixed in in our minds when we persevere through trials. We just sang it a few minutes ago. I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. When he calls me, it will be paradise, his face forever to behold. He is the treasure. We don't look to some abstract eternal life. It's going to be a fun time. We look to eternity with the one who died to purchase us with his blood. He is the treasure and the prize. So how does one get this crown? Do we get it by chasing after it? We say, I want that crown. No. Well, do we buy it? Do we acquire enough things and then maybe we can get this crown? Not a chance. The promise of God is that this trophy, this crown of life eternal, is available to those who love Christ. Those who love Christ are the recipients of this crown that is eternal life. In fact, pursuing greater love for Christ is the same way that we endure these trials, that we endure our financial hardships. And when we stand pure at the last day and see him finally in glory, that is our crown. We pursue, we endure, we persevere all out of love for Christ, the one who endured the cross to bear our sins in our place. Because without him, without this Christ that we're pursuing, let's remember where we'd be. We would be eternally lost. We would be eternally damned because of our sin. But instead, out of love for Christ, we look to the one who endured the cross, who bore our damnation in our place. And without his great suffering as our Savior, we would face that eternal death. But by his suffering, we look to him, we pursue him, we pursue joy in him, we love him, and we look to be with him forever. He is our goal. He is our prize. So whether trials come, be them poverty, be them wealth, or other things that maybe we've talked about in previous weeks, when trials come, we look to the one who bore that greatest trial on the cross for us. And we rejoice. We rejoice looking to our final ultimate happiness in Christ. So in review, as we close, when in poverty, what do we do? We boast in God. Maybe if you're even thinking through, what does that look like? Maybe thinking of it as like, how does one who's boasting or glorying in God through poverty, how do they flesh that out? I think you could start by just thinking through, how would I pray to God if I were boasting in him in my poverty? I would recognize, God, your grace has exalted me, has lifted me up, has elevated me with Christ. And I recognize I don't deserve a bit of that. Jesus, thank you for exalting me in a way the world may never see but that is a true reality. Or how do I boast in God when in prosperity, when in 
in wealth, if I, if I have things. And again, you may fall in both of these categories. Perhaps start with a prayer like this. God, your grace has humbled me, has humbled me to recognize I don't deserve anything you give and I can never, ever earn your favor toward me. What you have given me is a free gift. And for that, I thank you, Jesus. So in conclusion, the Christians who first read James in the first century needed to hear this teaching, needed to hear this teaching about a perspective on financial trials, and so do we. Jesus creates in his people a different perspective than the world on finances and on the trials they bring. So as we pursue our joy in Christ, as we deepen our love for Christ in our trials, we experience a present reality that is more true than having or not having money, that is more true than having or not having recognition. Living as redeemed people means, by God's grace, growing to have God's perspective on financial trials. Let's pray. God, I pray that by your spirit you would wing these truths to our heart. We come to you through access that was created by Christ in his death. And even in thinking through this message, Father, we know that your son experienced earthly poverty. He experienced the the scorn of that poverty when he hung naked on a cross for us. But he boasted in something eternal. For the joy that was set before him, we're told, he endured the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for enduring that cross for us, putting the eternal ahead. Help us, Lord, in our financial trials to draw out of us our natural tendency to focus inward, to focus on ourselves and our needs, our wants. Father, we pray that in being poor and looked down on as the lowly brother, that we would boast and glory in our exaltation in you. And that being rich and well-respected by others at times, that we would identify again with the Son who is made low for us. We're prone to wander in our affections, as the, the songwriter says. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We're prone to wander in our pursuits, to boast in the wrong things. We need your mercy. We need it today. We need it continually to be forgiven, your grace to be renewed. So as we gather now, Lord, for worship around the the bread and around the cup, help us to be reminded what it meant for Christ to be broken, his blood to be poured out for me, for us. Lord, we pray that you would continue your working in us through your word this morning. Remove anything, Lord, that people remember of me, that they would look to you and continue looking to you until that day they stand in your presence. Amen.